Thank you for downloading this podcast from the Pardes Institute of Jewish Studies. This episode of Pardes from Jerusalem is a Passover exclusive that features Abanit Nahama Goldman Barish. The Pardes Daily App Challenge is still going on this week. Be sure to download this app to get exclusive podcasts from your favorite Pardes faculty members. Please visit www.pardes.org.il forward slash Pardes Daily. And now, Rabbanit Nechama Goldman Barish. Every year, as Passover approaches, I return to the 10th chapter of Mishnayot M'sachim to consider anew how the reformulation of a holiday solely based around a sacrifice could continue to have meaning in a post-Temple era. To clarify, in the Tanakh, there are two holidays that are celebrated in Nisan. The first is Pesach, which is limited to the night of the 15th, ending at daybreak. At that moment, a new holiday begins, Chag HaMatzot, in which the restrictions on Chametz that began on the 15th continue along with the celebration of Matzot for an additional seven days. The question that arises is what to do with a holiday whose entire meaning is based on a temple-based ritual in the vicinity of Jerusalem. And so when I dip into the Mishnah and the structure of the Seder emerges clearly from the words on the page, I am deeply grateful for the seamless transition represented by the structure of this ritual and how it is presented, especially as I think about the millions of Jews around the world who continue to celebrate this holiday. In other words, the formulation of the Seder was enormously successful, so that when we think about who sits down to a Seder, you have multiple myriad communities taking the themes of Passover, of freedom, of redemption, of salvation, of a nation, a family, into their evening, and then creatively figuring out ways to tell the story and pass it forward. But if we go back to the period of the late Second Temple or post-destruction period, the challenge is acute. A a quick look at all biblical sources from Exodus through Chronicles highlights the centrality of the Passover offering as the focus of the entire evening. Non-Rabbinic Second Temple texts like the books of Jubilees, Philo, Josephus, all focus on the Passover offering. Given that it takes place outside of the home in the streets and hills around Jerusalem, it most likely felt like a national barbecue with the haste of trying to finish all of the meat by morning. The theme of the evening was the Exodus, of course, but there was no scripted text as families sat together in groups, minus those members who cannot make the trip due to illness or being in a state of tumah, impurity, or distance. A further challenge is presented by Christian scriptures, which recognize the enormous symbolism embedded in the figure of the Lamb. Passover is about God choosing his people and taking them out of Egypt to serve him. The Gospels talk about Jesus as the Lamb, a sign of God replacing one people for another. The rabbinic response to this situation is one of the clearest examples of how rabbinic Judaism essentially shaped our religious practice and gave it meaning and continuity despite the enormous upheaval, destruction, and exile that was taking place around them. Let us open with the first Mishnah in the chapter as an illustration of how they accomplished this. On Passover Eve, close to Mincha, a man may not eat until nightfall. Now, what I like to point out when I learn this Mishnah, when I teach this Mishnah, is that opening statement is not unique to Passover Eve. It's the same law for Friday afternoons before Shabbat, and any Erev Chag, any 
um, eve of a holiday. So the eve of Rosh Hashanah, the eve of Sukkot, the eve of Shavuot, you have to stop eating at a certain point in the afternoon. And, um, and the most obvious explanation is so that you have appetite, so that you go into the holiday, into the festival, into the Shabbat with an appetite for the food so that the food becomes an important way in which we rejoice and enjoy the sanctity of the day. And so there's something brilliant about starting off with a law that is not unique to Passover. It is true we're talking about the eve of Passover because that is the theme of the tractate, but it is not unique. And when I read it, I feel the uh, comfort it gives or the familiarity it presents to the audience. Oh, this is like any other eve of. It's like Friday. It's like the eve of Sukkot. There's nothing intrinsically different as of yet. This too is like the other holidays that we celebrate throughout the year. And now the author of the Mishnah shifts into a different gear, a gear in which there will be something unique and unprecedented. And what he says next is, And now we have two fascinating and innovative pieces introduced. Even the poorest person in Israel may not eat unless he reclines, because this has to be a sign of freedom for all. We don't uh, assign this kind of equality, so to speak, to the poor. Meaning, in other words, this idea of reclining is unique to this evening, and the idea that poor and rich alike will recline is already introducing something unfamiliar, something innovative, something new into the structure of this evening. And um, if we think about the Passover offering, which needed to be eaten in chaburot chaburot, it had to be eaten in kind of groupings of people so that the entire lamb would be finished by morning, we understand that biblically as well, it's giving an opportunity for the poor to join the middle class and the rich uh, in the occasion of eating the Passover offering, um, even if they couldn't afford their own lamb. And here we continue that trope by saying, oh, the poor person also has to recline, even though a poor person would not normally recline. And they may not provide him with less than four cups of wine, even from the charity plate. This too uh, reminds us of the tamhoi. We have a, a concept of a charity plate throughout the year. Uh, poor people could go to the charity plate and on the eve of Shabbat, for instance, they'd be given a little of legumes, a little bit of oil, some vegetables, perhaps some fish, but certainly not wine. And so on this night where everyone is meant to celebrate equally or commemorate, tell the story with the same structure, we use our precious resources, our charity plate, to give every poor person four cups of wine. And that's not insignificant, of course. Uh, And so we start with the familiar and we segue with two laws into two laws that are unique to this evening, which already intertwines the familiar and the unfamiliar as this structure unfolds. And then in a Tosefta, in a parallel Tanaitic text, we're told that the kind of wine doesn't matter. It can be raw, it can be diluted, it can be fresh, it can be old. There's a very minimal amount that has to be drunk with each cup, a fourth of a lug, which is really like two cheekfuls, right? You you puff up the, the wine in your mouth, what you can hold in your entire mouth. That's essentially the amount of wine. We're not talking about a large goblet. And Rabbi Yehuda then adds, as long as it has the taste and appearance of wine. 
also a very interesting parameter, which essentially says the quality of the wine is not the point. This is not Purim, where you are high of Adam the Psumi, where there's some sort of obligation to drink in order to gladden the evening. On this night, wine is going to serve a different purpose. The four cups are going to be placeholders, placeholders that are at once familiar and unfamiliar, as I'm going to explain. But the goal is not drunkenness. And so you can dilute the wine down, down, down with water as long as it holds the faintest memory of the taste and appearance of wine. We then have another halacha in a Tanaitic text that a man is a mitzvah adam the sameach banavu bnei beito. Again, this idea of a man commanded to make his children and his wife happy on the holiday, not unique to Passover. It is a, a commandment for all of the festivals, for Passover, Shavuot, and Sukkot, uh, but it's being introduced here to remind us that there's a gladness that is meant to be experienced on this holiday as in other holidays. And then the Mishnah and Mishnah 2 brings me a classic difference of opinion between Beit Shammai and Beit Hillel, something uh, intimately familiar to us from other arguments about Kiddush and the whether you start with the blessing over wine or the blessing over the day, it's something that is familiar to us because they argue about this on the eve of Shabbat and the eve of the other festivals. So again, this intertwining of the familiar and the unique, the first cup of wine is going to be Kiddush. That is certainly familiar to us. And we are going to follow Beit Hillel as we do in other uh, times of the year. Mishnah 3, now we go to the unfamiliar, something new. In the third Mishnah, we have this idea we begin a dipping course uh, in the time of the Mishnah and well into the uh, Gaonic period. They were eating, unlike our Sadarim where we don't eat until matzah, uh, except for a little bit of karpas. Uh, at the time of the Mishnah, they ate uh, a lovely dipping course with little bits of meat and fish, perhaps uh, using the vegetables to scoop up the condiments. And uh, and we see there's a dipping course until they get to the matzah. And then they set before them matzah chazeret haroset, the matzah, the lettuce, and the haroset. There's an argument about haroset. Haroset, of course, is something unique to this evening. And then the last line of the Mishnah, which I think is very moving, uva migdash mifi'im lefanav gufo shal pesach, in the present tense, according to the earliest manuscript of the Mishnah, and in the temple they set before him the body of the Pesach sacrifice in present, so that we have this continuum on, on the on the uh, tzir hazman, on the time, on the uh, continuation of time. What started in the time of the temple essentially has not ended. It's presented in um present tense, so that as we eat our matzah, our lettuce and haroset, we essentially feel that virtually we are eating the Passover offering, which is being brought in the temple and in the precincts of the temple. And so we are not mourning destruction. We are celebrating continuity with rituals that essentially seamlessly replace with regard to their meaning and their significance, uh, the Passover offering. Um, in a parallel Tanaitic text, we have this idea of the waiters. We have waiters on this evening. And at this point, I can already uh, introduce 
what Chazal, what the rabbis of the Mishnah are modeling themselves on. They're modeling themselves after the Greek symposium, which again is a brilliant innovation. They're taking a known structure and they're elevating and sanctifying it. So this idea of uh, reclining, of wine, of dipping courses, um, of waiters, those are all taken from the structure of the symposium, which is going to give form and content and structure to this evening as we tell our story of Yetziat Mitzrayim. In Mishnah 4, another piece that is from the symposium is introduced, the idea of the question-answer format. But here we focus on the father-child or the parent-child interaction. That, of course, is unique, taken from biblical texts, where several times we are instructed to tell our children when they ask the story of the exodus from Egypt. And here it is brought into structure and form and uh, uh, questions will be provided. And so in Mishnah 4, you pour the second cup. The second cup is going to be around the telling of the Exodus story. And uh, the son asks the father, the first opportunity is for the son to innovate the questions. And then the Mishnah says, if the son does not know or is not able to ask the questions, the father provides him with the questions. In the original Mishnah, we had three questions. Uh, Essentially, eventually a fourth question was added. Um, But the idea is to create a dialogue around this evening as we tell our story. And then at the end of the Mishnah, we're told, um, very powerful line, according to the understanding of the son, his father teaches him. So again, I like to remove gender according to the understanding of the child. His parents teach him, their parents teach them. And uh, that focus on speaking in a language in which our children can understand, that is a very central focal point of this evening. Um, taken from biblical texts in which, again, the story of the Exodus needs to be passed on to the children. And so all sorts of rituals are introduced in a parallel Tanaitic text. The adults grab matzah from one another to astonish the children, you can can imagine. Um, And the idea is to make sure the children are awake, the children do not fall asleep. And then the Mishnah ends, you begin with disgrace, you begin with the the story of our going down to Egypt, and then you conclude with shevach, with praise, and the text that you bring is Arami Oveda vi Achigmor Kola Parsha Kulo. And the text that you teach is an Aramean sought to destroy my father until he concludes the entire section. And we're going to take a look at that a little later on in this podcast. It's really a brilliant choice because essentially it's four verses long and it encapsulates the entire story in a very short text of going down to Egypt and being taken out of Egypt. And it's not an evening in which we're going to be reading uh, the, the book of Exodus or the book of Exodus through Deuteronomy into Joshua as we go into the promised land. It's not an evening of formal study. It's meant to be an informal evening in which the children and the adults interact. And if there are no children, the adults interact in a question-answer format. But it's the children, it's the women, it's the waiters. Everyone joins together in this community.
I want to continue at this point quickly looking at the rest of the Mishnayot or just summarizing what's in the rest of the chapter uh, because I want to conclude with a few ideas for you to take into your Passover Seder. In Mishnah 5, we have Rabban Gamliel, who we essentially quote word for word in our Haggadahs, uh, that a person has to say these three things, Pesach, Matzah, Maror. Uh, the idea here, of course, is that verbally we can express the connection to these mitzvot. We don't even have to eat them, so we don't have a Passover offering. That's okay. We can express, verbalize the meaning behind the Passover offering that God passed over our houses. That ultimately is what we're celebrating, God's redemption, God's salvation. We can do that without the Passover offering and the maror, which embittered us, and then the matzah, which essentially symbolizes redemption. Um, the Mishnah then goes on to talk a little bit about the Hallel, something that is the fourth cup symbolism, which is around the uh, the praising of God for the salvation, for choosing us, for taking us out of the, uh, out of Egypt. Um, and the the Mishnayot go on to talk about the third cup, the fourth cup, and in Mishnah eight. This idea of not ending with afi koman or afi kimon, and uh, this idea that um, in Greek that really represents an after party. Epikomanus is the after party, which during the symposium was significant. You would end your symposium and then kind of burst with revelry into another symposium. And uh, and here we're told, no, the evening is not about the drinking. It's not about the revelry. It's meant to structure the drinking and the food and the conversation are meant to elevate us. Lekadesh, right? We start with Kiddush and we have the four cups of wine, all of which have religious placeholders in this evening. This is not a symposium. And so it must be treated with the uh, both solemnity and the celebration, meaning side by side, there's something solemn about the evening and what it's commemorating and something joyful and something informal. It is a night like no other. And the last part of the chapter ends with uh, the idea that uh, it talks about the notar, the pigol. It ends, interestingly, not with the Passover Seder as we commemorate it, but with what you would do if you had sacrifices. So in some ways, it brings us back to the world that is no longer. And I'm going to come back to that point as well. Just to conclude uh, our overview of the chapter, what we've seen is an introduction of the familiar and the unfamiliar. We've seen the structure of the Seder emerge beautifully. And we conclude with remembering what is no longer, which is the blessing we would make over the Passover offering, the blessing we would make over the Chagiga offering, which of course we don't have. And what I'd like to share as we come to the end of the podcast are two ideas that I came across as I was preparing for Passover this year. And the first is by Rabbi Yair Khan at Yeshivat Haaretzion in Gush Etzion, who was a former, one of my first Talmud teachers, so it's a privilege to quote him. And he talked about the mitzvah of Sipor Yitziat Mitzrayim. On this night, we tell the story. And by telling the story, of course, we, re- we revive the past, we relive the past, we bring it into the present, we use our own language to tell the story, and it's many, many layers. And, um, and he points out that really we remember the Exodus every day. There is a mitzvah 
And remembering the Exodus, we say it every day in Shema, we say it twice a day. There are multiple mitzvot which are linked to the Exodus, including having compassion on the convert, on the orphan, on the widow, the idea of freeing slaves in the Jubilee year, the uh, the attitudes we bring to having Hebrew slaves or Hebrew servants of it every, um, the idea of being honest with weights and measures, all of those reference our exodus from Egypt. So on a daily basis, we actually remember Mitzrayim. There's nothing unique about remembering Egypt. But there is something unique about this evening where we tell the story, where we're given permission to tell that story, our story, the layers of our collective memory. And this intertwining of Zechira and Yitzira is going to be very important in terms of both the euphoria, the uniqueness of the evening, and what happens when morning comes. And I'd like to share a passage very much uh, in, in the Haggadah, which is, um, which is the story in B'nai Brak, where you have all of these sages who are sitting around in B'nai Brak telling the story, right? They're Misaper Yitzia Mitzrayim. They're telling the story of going out of Egypt and then in the morning, and I love this line, it's in the Haggadah, that their students come and say, Rabotenu, higiasman kriyatshma shel shacharit. Our rabbis, the morning has come and it's time to say the Shema. And really here, we see how one moment must segue into another. On one hand, they've been telling the story of Mitzrayim all night. What else? Is, what do they have to get up and say Shema for? Meaning, what do they have to remember the Exodus? And yet... These moments of um, elevation, this profound religious experience can only be a powerful conduit if we get up in the morning and we resume the, to some degree, the routine, the tedium, the repetition of our being in relationship with God as God's people. So that that moving from the euphoria, the religious experience, the uniqueness of the night, it must end with we must resume the duties and obligations that come with being in relationship on a daily basis. So those two together, the sipur, which is unique, and the schira, which is familiar, which is routine, which is rote, they must live side by side. The last idea I want to share with you is an idea uh, by Rabbi Shai held at Hadar Yeshiva, which really moved me. The idea that I, I read you a passage where we were told we had to say the whole parsha from Arami Oveda V, the idea of an Aramean uh, enslaved my, my, uh, my forefathers until the end of the parsha. But the end of the parsha actually ends with going into the land of Israel. If you would open up Deuteronomy 25, you would discover, 26, I'm sorry, Deuteronomy 26, verses 5 to 8, you would discover that verse 9 is going into the land of Israel, and yet the Haggadah ends with Vyotzienu, that only taking us out of Egypt. And so Rabbi Held reflected on this deliberate choice to end with the unfinished journey, the unfulfilled journey that the Haggadah essentially deliberately chooses to leave out the last stage in the journey, which the Torah mentions, which is coming into the land of Israel. And 
Rabbi Held wonders whether it's not imitating the end of the Torah, where there too is an end, but it doesn't end with going into the land of Israel. That's only going to happen in the book of Joshua. And he brought a beautiful idea, which perhaps the journey is an end in and of itself. It's not a means to an end. It is an end. And so there's something very powerful that there's a, there's a power to the journey and he quoted Rabbi Jacobs, who told him in a correspondence, the search for Torah is Torah, right? The, the, the telling the story is the purpose of the evening, even if we don't get to any final destination. And then he went on to say that nonetheless, there's a sadness. Moses certainly experiences a sadness in not reaching the destination, the sense of an unfulfilled journey, an unfinished symphony. There's something sad about that. And yet, so we hold those two side by side, the duality of both being on the journey and recognizing the journey has significance in and of itself. We are always on a journey and we don't have to feel an absence because we are on a journey. And at the same time, there is an absence. So that duality of both recognizing the power and feeling the absence is something that I think is contained and embedded in this evening. And I think it's reflected, and this is my idea, in the duality of the matzah, which is both chametz and matzah simultaneously. We take the the ingredients for chametz and we transform it into matzah. And so this whole evening is really about a certain duality in looking at parallel concepts, the idea of an unfinished journey, and yet there's something that is finished about a journey or something that is uh, that is reassuring about having this heightened awareness that our lives are a journey, and so um, and so I wish us all that we uh, take meaning in whatever stories we tell in this uh, complicated end to a very complicated time. Uh, with COVID, with the pandemic, with what, whatever we are bringing to this evening, whatever, whatever new stories we're going to tell. May it be an evening filled with joyfulness, with memory, with reconnection and uh, connection. And I want to wish everyone a happy Passover. Thank you for downloading this podcast, a production of the Pardes Institute of Jewish Studies. If you liked what you just heard, please give us a five-star review wherever you download your podcast today. Be sure to tune in next week for Parashat Shmini with Rabbi Michael Emerson. Thanks for listening.